0: The Guardian.
1: Just before the Iraq War began in 2003, Tim Collins, who was then commanding officer of the 1st Battalion of the Royal Irish Regiment, made a famous eve of battle speech to his troops. It was never meant for public consumption. It was neither recorded or filmed. But thanks to a journalist who was embedded with the Army, it made its way into the public domain. Prince Charles was very impressed. He said he found it profoundly moving. And it's said that a copy eventually hung in the Oval Office for President Bush. But, Tim Collins, you quit the Army in frustration in 2004, and it's fair to say that you've been a fairly passionate critic of the British Army strategy in Iraq ever since.
0: I think that's probably true. Um, I don't think that uh, it was our finest hour. And I think that the handling of that particular war has affected how we're perceived both in the region, by our public, and more importantly, by our friends and allies, particularly in the United States. How do you think the Iraq war will be judged by history? I think that the British contribution will be looked upon as a, both politically and militarily, a model of how not to do it. Explain two of those things a, a bit more. So first of all,
1: What, as you understand it, uh, the way we handled the Iraq war did to the view of Britain within
0: that region, within the Middle East? Well, I think that, um, as Seneca said 2,000 years ago, it's pointless having armies deployed overseas when you've no prudent counsel at home. And we had a situation where we had a chaotic government with a prime minister fighting with a chancellor and using the army and indeed the the, uh, invasion of Iraq as a lever with which to to whack each other. And meanwhile, we had some pretty lackluster military performance in the field, which deeply disappointed our allies and very much disappointed the Iraqi people.
1: You felt, did you, that it's interesting that the so-called TBGBs, this ongoing tussle between Tony Blair and Gordon Brown,
0: as you saw it, had a direct effect on the military campaign in Iraq. Well, it didn't as much as um, you know. it comes down to the fact that we were asked to do increasingly more and more and not given the resources to do so by the Treasury. And that was because of a spat between one guy with ambition, some might even say pretensions, and the other um, determined to frustrate those by withholding the funds to realise them.
1: Looking back from this vantage point, I wonder as well what you think uh, the Iraq War did to Britain's relationship with the States, which on the face of it is as tight as ever. But clearly, certainly in the minds of the public, the Iraq war really put a marker down that something very serious had happened.
0: I think that the United States military probably regards the British military in the same way that Roman legions might have regarded the auxiliaries um, as um, sort of fillers and chorus line, as opposed to a front-line trustworthy true. And, and they could be forgiven for thinking that after the, frankly, lacklustre performance uh, in Basra, the excruciating climax of which was the withdrawal from Basra itself with a sordid agreement signed in accordance with the uh, Iranian-backed militias, and then the Iraqi army, backed by the U.S. Marine Corps, going down and doing the job that the Brits should have done and clearing those militias out of Basra and making Basra a place you could walk the streets. Which Who, do you, blame, who do you blame for that lacklustre campaign in Basra, as you put it? There's a number of factors involved in that. I think that there was a perfect storm of world-class dithering at home, a lack of focus or any form of mission, both from the government and the Foreign Office, and really the the coming to uh, maturity of a generation of very mediocre officers. Uh, When we spoke to members of the public uh, in Regent's Park, there was a fair bit of anger and bafflement,
1: really, looking back at the Iraq campaign. This is what we found. What did you think of it when it started and while it was happening and what's happened since?
0: I think it was over oil, uh, and nothing more than that.
1: How do you think history will judge it?
0: I think we went into the war partnering America to bolster Bush's uh,
1: presidency. You're yeah. half Iraqi. Yeah, so, so I, th- I, th- I think it will judge it badly. I, think, I personally think it was a complete misdemeanor and a, and a complete sort of falsehood. You're yeah. a colonel in the Kuwaiti army. Yeah. So were you involved in the first Gulf War? Yeah. So when Britain and America invaded Iraq in 2003? Not invaded. OK, explain that. Not invaded, but because they get rid of the dictator. When you, you help them to get rid of a di- dictator, that's not an invasion, that's a help. Was anything achieved? Is there a coherent story we can tell about that invasion, what followed subsequently, and some result
0: that came out of it? I think staff colleges in the future will study the British campaign from the beginning. And the lesson to be taken is whatever they did, whatever decision they took, do exactly the opposite. Um, So it was almost a perfect example of bumbling military incompetence. And uh, those that they sought out to empower were exactly the wrong people. And finally, when it came to facing these people down, they failed to do that. One thing that really strikes me, um, reading your accounts of uh, the early
1: parts of the war, is being in the midst of an operation as big as that involving so many
0: troops and not having any clear idea what the mission was really. We wondered about that ourselves at the time, and uh, subsequently I'm told that the uh, at staff college, the general who commanded, gave a presentation of the complex operations order being prepared for this, and one of the people at the staff college asked, um, how did you communicate this to the troops at the front? And he said, oh there wasn't time, there wasn't time! <laughs> so at that point I realised there genuinely was no plan, uh, and. Uh, we were literally making up as we went along. but I have to say, and I take no credit for the success we had, we had enormous success, but the credit that, uh, that the Royal Irish certainly had must go to the local Iraqis, who I surrounded myself with, and uh, who had a clear campaign plan, and it was very effective, and huge, huge swathes of the uh, country were liberated in good order and intact. So, I mean, I've asked you that question in two different ways, and you know
1: there's a politician's answer which is as imperfect and some, somewhat chaotic as it still looks iraq is now better off without saddam hussein and it's a it's a burgeoning democracy and all of that now
0: it, i asked you that question twice and you didn't get near any of that do you buy any of that well <clears throat> i think uh, the one thing i would say uh, in terms of the british uh, army and in, in fairness <clears throat> what would be recognised across the board is the excellence of british special forces and what they did in terms of taking on and uh, destroying um, the, the stay-behind Baathists and taking on the uh, Iranian militias. And they were recognized, and are recognized, as probably the gold standard, even against the U.S. forces, by everyone, including the U.S. In terms of the regime itself, I think that uh, those who promoted this sort of incompetent regime that, that took power, really, that you could look to the Brits. and. I wouldn't, I don't want to be too cr- critical. The point was that nobody, you know, when, the thing about the British withdrawal was, you know, and the question being asked is when the British withdraw, how will we know? Because nobody ever saw them. I mean, they stayed. And even when they, when finally Optelic ended... In May. Would, in May, nobody noticed because... There there was virtually nothing there. There was some naval contemplation going on down in Basra, but that was about it. But what was left behind? Well, here's the interesting thing, and and this is what they failed to to, to grasp, and I think the Americans have grasped, is that the Americans quickly learned that their whole Jeffersonian democracy thing was good only as an idea, because the Shia who were put in power never really grasped, and they were so influenced and so penetrated by the Iranian regime that they became ineffective. What I see um, increasingly uh, in Iraq, and I've been back there every year since the invasion and spent a lot of time there, I have many friends, and I think what most people would recognize, the, the uh, emerging force now is the Ba'ath party, uh, al as we call them, the return. And they're becoming stronger and stronger. And I think one has to ask yourself, is that a bad thing? Is Arab socialism, that's Ba'athism a bad thing, because they deliver order and unity? Now, we must distinguish Baathism from the activities of a psychotic sociopath in the form of Saddam Hussein in his family regime. That was a bad thing, but that corrupted the whole of socialism. It's a bit like tarring the Labour Party with the Blair regime. Um, it, you know, once you take that away, you're left with something different. And so I think what will happen is that uh, Dr. Alawi, who is a Shia but is very well thought of by the former regime supporters will come to the fore. There's a bitter fight going on between the Baathist-sponsored al-Qaeda, who are basically farmed animals, they're being rec- rootly, rec- uh, remotely uh, run by al and the uh, Shia militias being run by remote, by proxy, by Tehran. Who will win? I, I suspect, I strongly suspect that uh, the Baathists and, uh, will prevail. I'm laughing in a grim way. Because if I'd have said to you in 2003,
1: well, the eventual upshot of all this will be the return of Bathism, wouldn't you have wondered what on earth you
0: were toiling in the desert for? I think we all would have done, but, you know, 10 minutes thought might have um, taken you there quite quickly, but I don't think anyone gave it as much as 10 minutes thought.
1: Talking of toiling in the desert, your army career lasted 23 years?
0: Yeah, there um, was. And the
1: pinnacle, I guess, was the famous speech you made on the eve of the, the start of the war, um, which it said was unscripted. It's a beautifully elegant bit of
0: uh, oratory. Was it unscripted? Well, um, I know that there's lots of conspiracy theory and and, uh, lots of uh, experts who have uh, have figured out how it was brought together. The one flaw in their plan uh, and and this uh, whole uh, theory is that uh, it came as a result of the unexpected attack uh, on uh, um, the Iraqi regime by the United States forces using uh, Tomahawk cruise missiles, um, and the speech was given uh, about two hours after that began. So I must make it clear at this point that I was not uh, uh, notified in advance of that surprise attack, and therefore, as the experts in Guardian East to say, I was spent all <laughs> night writing it the night before. The, the possibilities are either the White House personally briefed me the attack was to go ahead or else i'd seen it in a vision (coughs) neither of those things happened two hours after the attack began i realized i was going to take the young men of my battalion young men from ireland across an international border to uh liberate somebody else's country and i realized for many of them that was the last chapter in their young lives and i realized also they'd be taking other human lives which is a big step and for that reason i gathered them together and delivered a stream of consciousness i mean this puts most people's stream of consciousness to shame I think that when you're stood there at a solemn moment when history is being made, facing you are 1,400 young men and, and, and a few girls, uh, and you're looking above their heads into the distance to see uh, oil wells burning in uh, Iraq, then these sort of thoughts come
1: to you. I mean, that speech it said, is it true that that ended up hanging in the Oval Office? And that well I, well I don't, know because, don't
0: know, because i uh, never been to the Oval Office. I know that there's a belief that I have a very close relationship with the the, the U.S. regime at the top, but I don't was Not your fault. (laughs) (laughs) Not my fault. But nonetheless, given what happened subsequently, that
1: probably was one of the few occasions when the idea that the war was being conducted for the the best of motives and that also there were concrete standards in terms of the conduct of forces, that speech gave that form, right? And if you compare that subsequently to what happened, whether it's Abu Ghraib or Ba'amusa or whatever... Clearly, I mean, there's a hell of a contrast there, which gives the speech sort of added force, I suppose, that the the fall from innocence in Iraq is represented by how far things went from what that speech set out. Is that fair to say?
0: Well, it is fair to say. I think the other surprising and uh, dismaying thing was that uh, how much of that was true when we crossed the border, how much uh, the Iraqis were waiting for us, having thought about their liberation. When we liberated the Royal Irish Regiment liberated the town of Alamara, 300,000 people. Before we even sat down to negotiate them, Uh, having liberated themselves, uh, the first thing the resistance led by uh, uh, Abu Hatim wanted us to do was go and see the British military cemetery, see how well it was cared for as a show of good faith that they were uh, to demonstrate they were our allies, they were listening for us, they'd long been waiting for us, and they couldn't understand why it had taken us so long to come and liberate them. But everything after that, for me and for them, was utter disappointment and underperformance and mediocrity. Uh,
1: you've written as well about the discrepancy between British equipment, this is another cliche about just about every war we've been involved with in the last 10 or 15 years, and American equipment. I mean, you talk about desert clothing you were supplied with in the early stage of the War, you call it a joke. Well, it was a joke. Similarly, I think radio equipment, you say, was Stone Age, I think is the term that
0: you use. you've used about that. What's it like fighting with crap kits, bluntly put? Well, it, you know, the, the, it, you sort of expect that. The British procurement system was originally established by the KGB in the 1960s to piss Britain's defence budget up against the wall. You can guarantee that um, you will go with the worst kit if it managed to get there at all. Uh, I can remember when the Minimi light machine guns were delivered to us um, the night before we were to cross the border, and one of my particularly expert company commanders complained that uh, they hadn't had any instruction on these or being given the manuals. My answer was simple. Do you want them? Give them to me because B Company will have them. You don't want them. You were accused of war crimes. Yeah. Quite soon, looking back after the start of the war, you have
1: a sort of clear explanation for that, way over and above the accusations. In other words, there there were big issues at at stake here.
0: What were they? Why why you? Why do you feel you were singled out? Why was I singled out? I I suspect that... um, the army at that time, at the top, there were people who'd uh, never been to war, never been in a fight in the playground, and they felt threatened by people who had spent their careers on operations. And when I put my head above the parapet with this speech, um, I think that they probably felt that that was a step too far, and so they would show me who's who. Did you feel um, sort of righteous about that or did that bring on a certain regret that you'd made
1: the speech in the way that you had? Well,
0: I, I, To be honest with you, the speech was a real, irrele- because I hadn't been paying attention that. We were so busy uh, having crossed the border, dealing with the big issues that we were at, like opening schools, opening markets, fighting the enemy, uh, persuading the enemy to surrender in droves. Um, and I found about this, out about all of this, including the speech, after we had liberated the town of Alamar and settled it down, and not disarmed, but persuaded the uh, militias to work hand-in-glove with us. They were jointly manning road checkpoints with us when I was called in to be told that um, I was being investigated for war crimes because uh, some members of the uh, U.S. forces had heard a rumour that we hadn't been very nice to the Bath Party. And the Bath Party certainly felt that um, when they set out to murder somebody, they should be allowed to make that judgment themselves without me getting in the way and taking their rifles off them.
1: And you feel you were left alone by your superiors, really?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I hesitate like to use a phrase like hung out to dry, but that's precisely what you think about the way that you were treated, isn't it? Well, no, I mean, it, 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 it was a bit of a cack-handed uh, attempt to sort of catch me out, you know. It was, I mean, I look back on it, it was all a bit shit. You know, we had uh, the uh, head of the PR briefing the newspapers. Uh, I was finding out what I was actually accused from from the newspapers. But
1: 23 the, years in the army, you then find yourself accused of war crimes and you don't feel you're getting the requisite
0: support from your superiors. I mean, that's... Quite a process of disillusion must have set in very, very quickly. Oh, absolutely, you know, and, and so I wanted nothing to do with the British Army from that point on.
1: How did that uh, feel?
0: It's a bit like being in operations. You suddenly, you know, you're very focused. You know who the enemy is. Let me ask you what, if you can talk in these terms, what inspired you to join the Army in the first place? I think it was I was attracted to it as a career for a number of reasons. Uh, having grown up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, the Army's about you. I'd had family in the Army. And I suppose one was caught up with the whole romantic ideal at the time. Now, you joined, what, in 1981?
1: Yeah. Cold War was still on. I mean, the Falklands War was about to happen. Uh, But the era in which we live now is very different. I mean, it does feel like there's a foreign intervention involving British troops once every few years. Liberal interventionism, rightly or wrongly, is still a philosophy which people in government seem to hold very close and so on. Did it feel like there was a step change? I don't know when that would have occurred. You'd have to tell me maybe around the time that Blair came to power and we begin that run of what were known as Blair's Wars, you know, Kosovo, uh, Sierra Leone, then we move into Iraq and and subsequently Libya.
0: Did it feel like there was a step change, that what it was to be a soldier was changing at the behest of politicians? Someone prematurely talked in the fall of the Berlin Wall about the end of history, when in fact it was the beginning of history. And uh, the events of, for me, I was in Australia with the SAS. We were on a training mission in the desert, the Western desert. When the Berlin Wall fell, um, Nelson Mandela was released around about the same time. By the time I got back to the UK, the world had changed. Without drawing a breath, though, I found myself in Colombia, fighting the uh, Cali and Medellin cartels in Zaire during the army rebellion, then left as a troop commander to go to staff college. By the time I came back, Bosnia was pretty much the first thing I did as the ops officer of the SAS, was to go to Sarajevo during the siege. And so it just was seamless. It was Bosnia, Kosovo, Sierra Leone, Colombia, um, um, more interventions in Sierra Leone. I think we had about five s- interventions culminating in Op Barras, where we rescued the guys from the Royal Arch, Then I was in command of the Royal Irish. Then I was in Northern Ireland. Then we had Fatty Prescott's fireman strike. And before we knew what, we were off to uh, Iraq for the invasion. It just it was seamless. The other thing we asked members of the public about was the idea that the armed
1: forces now are overstretched. How do you think we treat the army in this country?
0: Um, not that well. No, I think they should be looked after much better. And of course they're cutting back and back the forces. They're asking more and more. Maybe. They're
1: getting a bum deal, all told. Yeah, I'd say so. And we expect a lot of them these days.
0: Uh... In the sense
1: that there seems to be a new war once every few years, you know.
0: More like every few months.
1: It's their job, but I guess, yes, they do make the ultimate sacrifice, so they, you know, so that has to be recognised. Do you think at a time like this we should cutting back on defence spending. I don't see why we can't cut defence budgets. I think Britain's got the third largest defence budget in the world. I don't really think it's needed, especially when we're integrated into the European Union. We've got to save £20 billion for the NHS, so I think cuts have got to be made everywhere, certainly. I mean, you know, teachers, pension issues, there's, there's a but whole range of issues. There's got to be a balance, and, and at the same time you don't want this country to lose its standing in terms of being able to at least defend itself, but also to have... a a role or a voice in the world I mean if that idea of liberal interventionism and regular military engagement by British forces is so built into politics now I mean one could sense watching David Cameron how long will it be before he makes his first commitment of troops it's almost like a blooding process that's when you become a real prime minister how much is the actual business of resourcing the armed forces taking care of them I mean how far you know what's the deficit really between what we expect of the army and what we actually de- the forces more generally and what we actually deliver for
0: them. I think the armed forces, and the army particularly, is about a third of the size it needs to be to meet the requirements that are being set on it. But traditionally it's almost a sport for the civil service um, is to see how much the army will do before it falls over. I mean, they would turn the oxygen down if they could. It comes back to this business that, in theory government commands and an organ of government is the foreign office and you have a foreign policy and then the armed forces and other departments like DFID do things to meet those foreign policy aspirations and there doesn't seem to be a connect between those yet, it started off in Tony Blair's time when he was more or less his own foreign minister, he had that nice lady who had the caravan who wasn't allowed to answer the phone uh, normally in charge of the foreign office but he did it himself and uh, since then we've been in a muddle the fact of the matter is, can we afford expeditionary armed forces?
1: But in theory, correct me if I'm wrong, you were signatory to the founding the statement of the Henry Jackson Society. Yes. Is that true? Yes. So in theory, you're comfortable with the idea of some liberal interventionism and the idea of Britain being part of the forces which, uh, in theory, abroad uh, embed democracy and the rule of law and all of that. You well, think you think it's, it's a good idea in principle?
0: I I do. I, well, I think more moreover, I think there's a hypocritical point of view that... Uh, to feel that we can live as we live and speak as we do, but accept that others don't, should we have intervened on behalf of the Iraqis. You know, Sodom, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're, the dowry that we have given to Saddam Hussein, he can do what he likes with them. I don't believe that. I think that uh, how can we live as we do and expect them, uh, they are waiting, they look at the United Kingdom, they look to us uh, as, as one of the areas that they can hope that we will say enough and is Is it difficult making
1: that argument? after the history of the last 10 or 15 years. With Iraq in particular, Afghanistan, one could also use as, as proof against the, or proof of the fact that with the greatest liberal interventionist ideals in the, in the world, unfortunately, these things always fall into chaos and squalor and disappointment.
0: Well, you, you say that, but I think that again, if you, if you go back to history and look at the, what actually happened, you can see that interventionism on occasion works. I mean, the mantra is, uh, of the three Afghan wars, the British lost three wars when, in fact, the first war was a private military company, the East India Company, that was defeated, not the British Army. The British Army went in immediately after that and flattened Kabul, and uh, I don't think the Afghans enjoyed that a lot, and they probably didn't call that a victory. In the second Afghan war, the British ended up uh, defining the modern borders of that country and ran its foreign policy, which was the war objective, for the next 45 years. That looks a lot like a victory to me. And the third Afghan war really uh, probably was an Afghan victory and that the British withdrew um, the control of their foreign policy, but also stopped paying them any money, and the Afghans starved thereafter. So that was hardly a result for them. Um, the fact of the matter is that the modern Afghan situation, and you wouldn't believe it reading the papers, but the subversive organizations, the Quetta Shura, the Haganai Network, Gulbuddin Hikmatyar's organization, LET, they're on their arse at the moment. They have no money and they're losing the military war. The problem we have, they have, which is then our problem in the West and the problem in the Karzai government, is they have no political agenda. They don't have a Sinn Féin. They don't know what. If war is a continuation of politics by other means, well, there was a political void before the invasion happened. and now. They have no idea what they would like to end. They want it to end, that's what they're asking for. They're asking how can this end? But the question going back to them is, what does good look like for you? And the most you can get from these guys is big beards, no girls. And it's like, that's not enough, what else? (laughs)
1: Last question then, I mean if, there is merit in the idea of liberal interventionism and in the idea that one, one cannot sit back and go introverted and just sit on one's own democracy and not think this applies to anybody else. How do we bridge that gap? If the army is a third of the size that it ought to be, as you say, to fulfil any of what we're talking about, what, how do you get over that political problem? And we've got an under-resourced, under-respected military, which politicians... You know, can't use effectively on the face of it, and yet you have these high ideals. How do we get from one to the
0: other? Well, I, I think that the army is respected. The, the, the uh, I think we have to, you know, have a, some sort of overseas intervention and close the army procurement uh, organisation. We need to have a plan. But politically, if the cabinet walked in the room and said, "Oh, c-
1: go on then, tell us, please, how we bridge this gap between an army a, thir- a third of the size
0: that it should be to fulfil any of the of the." motivations and commitments uh, and so on that uh, we're talking it boils down to if you can't do anything select something you'd like to do and do it well and uh, certainly when I was in the army in my civilian career is the same problem the British army uh, found is how to be in two places at once Uh, you can't and so what you do is, is choose a priority, now it's a maxim of mine that if everything's number one priority then nothing's number one priority by definition.
1: And looking across the world right now what should be do you think? The British armed forces and the British government,
0: more specifically, what should be its policy, its priority in terms of I think that um, and because I travel to Afghanistan a lot and uh, keep a close handle on that we 're so close to success there. We must finish that and do it well and leave it in the hands of the uh, the, the afghan military we 've got to make the Afghan military strong. And we've got to make it thoroughly independent. We've got to look hard at the Karzai regime. And if it's not fit for a purpose, we can't hand control to them. Maybe too late. We might have gone too far down that road. But we've got to hold our hand in the fire.
1: So to end on a, I mean, it's somewhat controversial in the minds of many, but a note of optimism, you think the, Af- the intervention
0: in Afghanistan can be redeemed, in other words? I think there can be a stable administration left behind, but based on a power-sharing understanding. And that means involving the Afghan Taliban in the solution. And I think with careful coaching, they can be made part of the solution. Indeed, some of their shadow governors are probably more righteous people than some of the actual governors. And I think it's a bit of a curate's egg but by and large, as humans, their heart's in the right place. Tim Collins, thank you very much.